Hey, if you don't know me, my name is Jason. I am, uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and so I'm really glad to be here this morning with you. I hope that you guys are glad. I woke up this morning, and it was not hot, not cold, not dry, not wet. It was like perfect this morning, and so uh, we'll see if we can keep that ball rolling and, and kind of enjoy our day. Um, how many of you guys, show of hands, struggle with test anxiety? Yeah. Okay. See, I waited a little bit because that was a test, right? And so like half of you guys are like, I don't want to raise my, oh yeah. Okay. So no, you know what? I looked up some statistics this morning. High school students, they, they, they figure this out for students, obviously. High school students, it's a 48% range of people that deal with test anxiety. Half of everybody has a problem taking tests. It's actually worse for ladies, found out this morning too. So um, test anxiety is a real thing. It's, it's scary to have to take a test. And sometimes you know all the answers. Sometimes you know exactly what you need to know. And then test day, and it's like, where'd it go? What happened, right? I'm not that way, okay? Different, different people, I'm sure, are going to raise their hand. How many of you guys like tests? We just made a bunch of enemies, you guys. We need to, like, be friends. We need to circle the wagons. Yeah, so... <laughs> I actually, I really kind of liked tests. I thought I liked tests at least. Um, I was a pretty good student in, in high school, middle school. I was a pretty good student. And so that meant that I would take kind of the, the more advanced classes. And I did pretty good in them because I did good at tests. Taking the test was kind of the easy part for me. I didn't have to know the material quite as well, right? But I thought I liked tests until I got to college. And boy, did things change when I got to college. And you know what? I've been to college three times. I have one degree. <laughs> I'm not a doctor. I can't say I've been three, three different times. Two of them didn't work. But um, so I kind of, I feel like I've got my share of test taking at the college level now at this point. And you know what? Some tests are a problem. And then there's the one at the end of the semester. You guys know what that test is called? The final right? That's the big one. And see, in high school, it was just sort of like you needed to prove that you understood the material, but you already had a pretty good grade. And you get to college, and it's like 50% of the grade is one test. And the final matters a whole lot more, right? And so the final suddenly carried so much weight that it didn't matter that I was a good test taker. Suddenly, I'm, I'm nervous about the test too, right? Because it, I may or may not pass based on how I do that day. Well, The best part about the best teachers was they would tell you ahead of time, this is going to be on the final. Man, I love those teachers, right? You had some teachers that just, they just were, they were a hard-nosed teacher, and it was like, everything I say, you need to take great notes. It may or may not be on the final, and your job was to take all this information and funnel it into what you thought was important. And then you had those teachers that were like, hey, this is going to be on the final. And you, you would see the body language in the room would change, right? Everybody would suddenly perk up. And I don't care if you brought a pencil or not, you were finding a way to make a note, right? Everybody leans in like, what's he saying? Because you know what? If you know what's going to be on the final, if you know what's going to be on the test, you tune in. You pay attention because the teacher's saying, this is what I care about. And you're like, well, then I care about it too, <laughs> right? Like, suddenly I care about what you're talking about because you... Yeah, you told me, right? Okay, so take that, that notion about having a final test and knowing, knowing the answers and, and how that takes away some test anxiety. And let me ask you this. How many of you think you know what's on the Jesus final? Raise your hands. 
I would I, we need to preach a different message, you guys. <laughs> this isn't a, tr- I mean, I was kind of thinking you guys would have more, uh, there'd be more hands up, right? Let me ask it in a different way, because I think, um, really, you guys probably have a pretty good idea of what you know, right? Um, let me ask it in the, the 90s church, uh, Baptist church way. <laughs> if you were to die today, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt where you would go? And most of us go, oh, oh yeah, yeah, I know that one, <laughs> right? And you know what? If you showed up, uh, you die, or Jesus comes back, and you're face-to-face with Jesus, and he says, why should I let you in? And you go, oh, I know that. Um, you died for me. And you look at him, and you go, I get to get in, right? <laughs> like, I got the test right, right? I know the answers, and I've, and I've had this truth, and I've held on to it for so long, and so it's finally time for the test, and bleh, you died for me, right? And, and I think we, most of us would say, yeah, I think I've got that part figured out, right? Wouldn't it be nice, though, if Jesus said, this is going to be on the final." Wouldn't it be nice if at some point in all the things that he said in the Bible, as thick as it is, if in all of that, somewhere in there he said, this is what I'm going to care about the next time I see you. I think we'd lean in, wouldn't we? I think we might double check. I think I I know the answers, but if if Jesus says, this is going to be on the final, everybody perks up. Everybody grabs a pencil. I want to be sure. That's what we're going to talk about today. We've been in a series in the book of Luke. Um, we kind of, we go into the book of Luke for a while. We do 10 or 12 weeks, and then we go out of it for a while and kind of take a deep breath. Um, we've been kind of going through it for about two years now, a year and a half, and we're getting close to the end, you guys. Um, I said last night, I almost used the word promise. <laughs> we're going to be done with the book of Luke by the end of summer, I'm sure. <laughs> pastors aren't allowed to promise because weird things happen when pastors promise, so um, we're getting so close, though, that we're really kind of, we're, we're at the end. We're at the part of the story that I think a lot of people really know pretty well, okay? And so what we're going to look at today is this transition between Jesus' teaching ministry and the time, the, the last week that he spends in Jerusalem, the Passion Week, okay? We're going to talk about the transition, and then over the next couple of weeks, we're going to start talking about that Passion Week. And so where we left off last week was... Jesus had just had this really weird and cool encounter with a tax collector named Zacchaeus. And you guys know the song? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And all the short people are like, that's my guy. <laughs> right? And he climbs up in a sycamore tree, and Jesus says, you get down here. We're going to your house. And the weird part about it, though, is there's this, there's this fervor. There's this um, growing excitement that King Jesus is about to bring the kingdom of God to earth, and he's going to throw the, the Roman oppression off of Israel, and we're going to have, we're going to be the spotlight of the earth, you know, that, that Israel's going to really finally have the kingdom, right, because Jesus is here. And so you would think then Rome's the enemy, and so what's weird about this is Zacchaeus works for Rome. He's a Jew who paid to work for Rome to take money from other Jews. He's kind of a bad guy. And he goes, I want to hang out with you. And everybody goes, what? Wait a minute. He's the bad guy, right? And so he ends that whole conversation by saying, salvation has come to this house, talking about Zacchaeus, because Zacchaeus recognized who Jesus was. And then this statement in verse 10, and we're going to start there and then go into our new stuff. For the Son of Man came to seek Jesus. 
and save the lost. That's the environment. We're in the town of Jericho. We're in Zacchaeus' house. He tells the crowd, you guys, the reason I'm here is to seek and save the lost. Not enemies, not friends, the lost. And then he starts this in verse 11. While they were listening to this, that's the setting for this parable that we're going to read today. That same group of people, the disciples, Zacchaeus and his family, and the people who were like, wait a minute, King Jesus, he's the bad guy, all those guys. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, and here's the reason for this whole story. Because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So this fervor, this excitement that like we're, we're getting close to Jerusalem, um, and, and as soon as we get there, King Jesus is going to throw off Rome. And he's, he knows this, and so he tells them this parable because he realizes that this is the last time that he's going to go to Jerusalem. He realizes that once he goes, things will be set in motion that are going to result in his death. In fact, he just said so back in chapter 18, just a few conversations earlier. He said, I'm going to die, and it just says they were like, I don't get it. <laughs> he says, I'm going to die. I'm going to be handed over to the, to the Gentiles, and they're going to kill me, and I'm going, to, I'm going to come back to life. And they go, what? So you're a king? They just don't listen, right? And so once again, he's trying to clear things up for them, and he tells them this parable. Basically, as we read this, what you're going to see is these are the answers to the final, okay? And what, you'll see how that works out here in a minute. But what I want you to do, though, is to pay attention to the characters in this parable. We're going to talk about a nobleman who becomes a king. We're going to talk about some servants whose job it is to take care of the kingdom stuff. And then we're going to talk about all the other people that the, the nobleman will have a right to rule over someday. Okay? So here we go. Verse 12. <clears throat> he said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants, and he gave them 10 minus. A mina was uh, about three months' wages. Okay? Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects, the citizens, the people that he had a right to rule over, hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Now remember, the purpose of this conversation is that Jesus' followers thought He's going to set up his kingdom. And so he's like, I'm going to tell you guys a little bit of a, of a story about a king. Okay? And what you've got to understand some cultural context here. It says in verse 12 that this nobleman went to a faraway country to have himself appointed king. That seems really weird, right? Except, remember the setting. They're in Israel, and Israel is ruled by Rome, right? Rome was so smart at the way that they managed their kingdom, what they would do is they would take over, they would set up military outposts, and then let those people continue to rule themselves under their own authority. So that Rome's getting the taxes, Rome has the military, Rome has the authority, but you guys can have your own king, I don't care. Right? And so, this was actually really common in the Roman government, that a small kingdom like Israel, when, when a king would change, when the kingship would change, everybody knew that the next guy was the king, but they would have to go to Caesar to get permission, his stamp. Yes, you can be the king. Far away, right? And then you've got this part at the end where it says there's a delegation of people that hated him, and they went after him to say, we don't want this man to be king. 
that actually really happened. In fact, it would have happened in the lifetime of the people that were listening to Jesus talk. Back in 4 BC, Herod the Great died. And when he died, he left his kingdom to three of his sons and split it up. Okay? And so you've got three different parts of his kingdom given to three different sons, and one of them, the one that would have been the king over Judea and Jerusalem, Jericho, the southern part of the kingdom, his name was Archelaus, and nobody liked him. In fact, he had such a struggle that at one point he massacred 3,000 people because back then, it wasn't like politics today where you want to win the favor of the people. You just want to show them what happens when they dissent. Right? And so he tried this, he tried to squish their descent, squash the descent with this massacre. And so when he goes off to Caesar to be crowned the king, to be told that he could have the kingdom, they actually sent 50 Jewish men behind him across the sea to Rome to plead for Israel, please don't let this man be our king. And so you can understand the cultural context that Jesus is talking about here. And so it's not far-fetched. It's not hard to understand that there would be people in the kingdom that don't want you to be king and that there are people in the kingdom that work for the king. Okay, that's where we're at. Verse 15, he was made king, however, and returned home. He sent for the servants. Remember, those are the slaves. Those are the ones that work for him. To whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. We're going to come back here in a minute and unpack a bunch of this stuff, but what I want you to notice is he's, he's checking to see what they had gained with it. He's not checking to see if they still had it. That's important, okay? The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. And just a side note, if, you, if you're as a businessman, if you figure out how to make 10-fold profit, come talk to me. <laughs> I need to learn from this guy. There's, this is good finance. He took one of something and ended up with 11. Pretty good at this, right? And so his master notices and he says, good, good job, good job. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. And what I want you to notice here is that it wasn't about the money for the king, right? He didn't need money. He had cities to give away. The increase in money did not benefit the king as much as knowing that that servant could make an increase in money. That's what mattered to the king. The second one came, verse 18. The second one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. Again, fivefold is fabulous. <laughs> that is doing a really good job in business, right? His master answered, You take charge of five cities. And the implication here is that the text is just shorter to, to equate the two, but it's the same thing. He goes, good job. Good, you're doing good. You multiplied what I gave you. I entrusted you with something and you multiplied it. Why don't you take charge of five cities? And then verse 20, then another servant. And I like this. You've got the first guy, you've got the second guy, and then another one. Right? Have you ever had somebody in your friend group or in your family and you're like, oh yeah, and the other uncle? Right? It's never a good thing when the story says, and then the other guy. This is the other guy, okay, verse 20. And so you have to understand too, there were 10 servants. Where there's no point in going through them all. And so Jesus shortens it and says, here's a big contrast between the ones that did it right and the other guy. Another servant came and said, sir, here's your mina. 
I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. It's a pretty big difference, right, from a business perspective. Now, uh, we were kind of brainstorming behind the scenes this week and talking about this, and in reality, most of us would say, if I gave my kids 10 bucks and said, I'm going to come back in a couple weeks and see what you did with my 10 bucks, I'd probably be okay if they were just like, still got it. <laughs> right? like, most of them would have been like, well, I bought lollipops. <laughs> right? And so, in some ways, you look at this and you go, well, he still has it. Good job. <laughs> but that's not how his master replies. Verse 22. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. I never want to hear those words, right? I, I think Jesus could tell me a lot of things, but I never want to hear, you wicked servant, right? And so perk up. This is on the final, okay? Get out your pencils. I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did I, that I'm a hard man? And here's how I want you to read this. He's going to basically re-say back to the guy what, what he said about him. He's not confirming that those character traits were an accurate description. What he's going to do is he's going to take his own logic and show him, even with your own logic, you're a problem. You didn't do this right. Okay. So imagine he's, he's saying it back like this. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man? taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? In other words, like there's safe ways to make sure you don't lose the money and at least do something with it, right? So even with your own logic, even if I'm the worst master out there, you could have at least gone to the bank and I'd have had like a, a mina plus 25, right? A mina plus interest. Why didn't you do that? And see, here's the problem. This servant doesn't know who the king is. And I mean know him, right? He can probably write his name out. He can identify him in a crowd. In fact, he has some association with this king. So he knows who he is, but he doesn't know him. The other two guys were like, Man, I know what my master wants. He even told me. He said, go do business. Make something out of this. And this guy says, I'm so afraid that I might lose it, that when he gets back, my only goal is to satisfy him and say, I've still got it. I still, I still have that thing that you gave me. He also didn't trust the king, right? These other guys had to go do business in a risky environment. Take a step back, remember all the characters? A big group of the characters are the people that are opposed to this guy being king. That's the culture that these servants have to do business in. There's a lot of people out there that don't want this nobleman to be king, and yet the servant's job is to go into that group, do business for the king. That's risky. That's uncomfortable, right? And so there's the possibility that you might not do well with your investment, and yet they trusted the character of the king enough to do what he said to do and let the chips fall. And this guy didn't trust him. He didn't trust his goodness. Like, what if I lose it? What if, what if I don't do well with it? He didn't trust his goodness. He was afraid of him. He wasn't, and this is the down and, down and dirty part, he wasn't willing to labor for the king. He wasn't willing to put in any effort for the king. It was all about himself. He said, I'll hold on to this for safekeeping, 
to satisfy your wrath, right? I don't want you to be mad at me because you're a hard man. You take out what you don't put in. In other words, I'm afraid that if I lose it, you're going to take it back from my bank account. You're going to require it of me if I lose it. And so you know what? Just so that doesn't happen, here, I kept it. And then it gets harsh, you guys. We're going to read a couple verses now that are uncomfortable, okay? Let's do it together. I have a smile on my face. I bet I look like a masochist up here. Weird. Yeah, all right, let's go. Verse 24. And then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they replied, or they said, he has 10 already. Think about that. The whole, the whole group of people, all the other servants, everybody standing around is like, that's not fair. And I think we think the same thing, right? Like, are you kidding me? The guy with 10, now he has 11. He's doing fine. He doesn't need this other guy's mina. This guy's only got one. Why would you take it away? That's not fair. And what I want you to pay attention to as we're reading this is it's not about the stuff. It's about the stewardship of the stuff. And what he says here is, from the guy who's a bad steward of my things, give that opportunity to the guy who's good at investing my things. Right? Whose stuff was it? wasn't the servant's stuff in the first place. It wasn't his mina in the first place. It's not a question of fairness to take away something that you don't own. But you're not managing it well, so I'm going to take away your management of it. Let's keep going. Verse 26. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. And this is the one where you go, if this, if this is talking about Jesus, I'm uncomfortable, right? The same principle, you can't take this out of context. The same principle applies no matter how you're dealing with Jesus when you're talking about stewardship, not stuff. And he says, it's the people who steward well that get the responsibility to steward more. In fact, did you notice that the reward for these guys was more work? He said, go out and invest this three-month salary, and then they do a really good job. They're like, you're so good at working. Why don't you manage 10 cities? That sounds easy, right? <laughs> more work. They were rewarded with more to do in the kingdom, more responsibility because they were trusted by the king. And what he says here is, you know what? If you're not good at it, I'm going to give it to somebody who is, okay? Verse 27, and this is all harsh, I know it. But those enemies, the other group, the one who said, we don't want him to be king. Those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. And you go, are we still, are we talking about Jesus? Because at the beginning of this, I felt like maybe this was Jesus. And now we're at the end and wait a minute, that makes me uncomfortable, right? The reality is that up until the last three or 400 years, this idea of democracy and dissent among the ruled didn't exist, right? We can literally now have bumper stickers that say, not my president. You drive around town and say, wear a shirt that says, I don't like this guy, didn't vote for him, right? And nobody does anything. But all throughout human history, you were either in the kingdom or you were an enemy of the kingdom, period. And so if you lived here, if you worked here, if you were involved in what we're doing and you're like, not my king, and he goes, not my servant, right? 
That's how we deal with it, right? All throughout human history. And so I don't think that it's Jesus being harsh as we would understand harshness. I think that he's speaking to a crowd of people that go, that's what kings do to enemies. So it made sense to the people who were listening, right? Now, I told you that we were going to kind of go through it and then unpack it. Here's what I want to do. I want to figure out where we're at in this story. Okay? Where are we in this parable? Because I'm going to give you a heads up. We're going to keep going here in a minute in the text, and we're going to read a narrative part of the scripture. So I want to take this story and make it make sense before we keep going. Okay? So my conviction is that this king is Jesus. I think it's kind of hard to get around. I think that the idea that, G, that this nobleman was, uh, was already of noble birth, was prepared to be the king, but had to go away and be crowned king to come back and receive his kingdom lines up with a bunch of stuff in scripture. Right? Philippians 2 says that Jesus, whenever he came to earth, he humbled himself to become a man, and that when he died on a cross and was resurrected and ascended back to heaven, the Father crowned him, and everybody will then bow at his feet. Okay? So the idea of Jesus going away to be made king or announced as king with the right to return to rule is just kind of undeniable. I don't look around like he's not here at the moment, right? He's not walking around among us, and yet we expect him to come back. And so I think there's no way around it. He's the king. So if Jesus is the king, that means somehow, somewhere in this, we're in this story. And I think that we're the servants. I think that we're the slaves. I think there's no way around that either because there are the people who are against Jesus and hopefully, if you came to church today, you're not against Jesus too much, right? So you're probably the servants, which is interesting then because that means we've been given something with a purpose, and that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to say, what did you do with it? And when the final happens, he's going to say, this is what I cared about. How'd you do? And you have the opportunity to be the good servant or the bad servant. And there's a lot of weight there, isn't there? It's kind of a, a scary thing. Now, I think, uh, I'm, I'm going to get a little bit ahead of myself, but I, I think that what we've been given isn't stuff. I don't think that this is talking about how we steward our things, our money. I don't, I don't even know if, uh, I think you could, you could talk about it in a way that just talks about stewardship in general, and in that way you have all this time, treasure, talents, right, the, the opportunity and influence that you have around you, but I think what this really is talking about is the gospel. Every single one of these servants was given the exact same investment. Every single one of these servants was given one mina, one thing that was kingdom currency, and we've all been given the gospel message, right? We've all been entrusted with this truth that Jesus died for our sins and that by dying for our sins, we don't have to pay that penalty, but then he rose from the grave, right? Showing that he had power over that penalty and because he rose from the grave, he offers that same truth to us, right? And so we rock around with this truth that like, I don't have to pay my own debt and I have this life ahead of me even after death. That's the gospel. You've been entrusted with that. What are you doing with that, then, is the question with the story. Now, also then, there's an implication with that bad servant that it's possible to be associated with the king and not be a good servant. That it's possible to be associated with the king in the way that that, that guy was, right? He knew who he, he would be able to recognize him in a crowd. In fact, he may have, he may have had like the, the king's signet ring, right? So that he could actually do business out in public. And so in some ways he was even uh, attached to him like, like financially, business-wise. He was part of the group of servants who were out working for him, right? 
Being associated with the king didn't mean that the king was happy with the way he did business, does it? It wasn't just like, come home and where are my people at? That was not the final. The final was, what have my people been doing with what I entrusted them with? And so it's possible to be associated with it. Actually, um, how many of you guys like, like sports and the rhythm of sports? And we do like basketball for a while, and then we do football for a while, and baseball forever. And um, Sorry. <laughs> Um, so, you guys, the, the NBA basketball season just wrapped up, um, and I heard this really interesting uh, thing on the news, and I won't call out the, the celebrity who did this, but there was a, a celebrity who had been rooting for the team that won, okay, the whole season. They were like a passionate fan, and celebrities, you know, with money, they can be courtside, right? And so there's, he's like sitting near the bench all the time. He probably knows the players. And so he's by the court. They, they win the last game, game six of the finals, and so interviewers are running around like, who can I interview? Who I recognize that celebrity, runs over there, interviews him, and what that celebrity said was, we willed this to happen. We did it. We finally won. And you go, we? Did you shoot a basket? Like, I don't remember you suiting up for the game. Like, you have a jersey on, right? But, like, I don't remember you actually sweating out there on the floor. I don't remember you getting knocked over or, or dunking the ball. What did you do? He was associated with the team, and somehow in his mind, being associated enough meant I did this, and I benefit from it, therefore. That's just not true, right? He could wear the jersey all day long. He could root for that team to do well, but he didn't actually do anything to win the championship. And I think it's totally possible then for us as believers to be associated with the community of other believers and be going to a local church, be tithing, maybe even be serving, maybe, uh, maybe wear a, a hat, you know, like that guy's jersey, right? Wear a hat that says Life Community Church, right? And you're totally, uh, you would say, I'm part of this community and still not be doing anything with what you've been given and trusted, if that makes sense. And there's a fine line there. I think serving in the church is doing something. That's not what I mean. But it is entirely possible to have that same mindset that the other servant had, where I'm going to hold on to this for safekeeping, right? I'm going to, this, the gospel was for me. And so because it's for me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hide it away in a cloth, and I'm going to memorize all of the little, like, what it means things, so that when Jesus shows up, I can unwrap it, and go, the gospel. And he goes, yeah, I know what that is. <laughs> right? Like, what'd you do with it? What difference did it make? Right? All right, so there's that. Now, what I also want you to know before we go into this next story um, is there was essentially this big divide in the culture, right? And you even saw it in that parable. There's those people that are for the king and those people that are not for the king, well, realize that that was a very real-life thing for Jesus as he's entering the last week of his life, as he's going into Jerusalem for the last time. We're going to read a story um, that you guys are probably familiar with, and it could easily be its own message because you can nerd out on all the like prophecy stuff, and I'm not going to. Okay, so heads up if that's you. Sorry. Um, go back in our archives. We went through Daniel a couple years ago, and we did a bunch of cool prophecy stuff. We're not going to do that today. What I'm going to do for you, in fact, I'm going to skip a few verses, and I'm just going to tell you what they are, and then we're going to pick it up here in a minute. So after this um, conversation that Jesus has with this parable, after that, he's willing to go to Jerusalem. After he has said that, it says he sets off for Jerusalem. They're in Jericho, and what I think is interesting is that Jericho is 846 feet below sea level. It was and is to this day the lowest city on earth. 
okay? It's below sea level, 846 feet. It's down in the Jordan Valley. Um, you guys know like the, the Dead Sea, water goes in, never comes out because it's so low, it just, you know, it just evaporates, right? That's the environment Jericho's in. And so when they set out for Jerusalem, they have to go by way of the Mount of Olives. The route from Jericho to Jerusalem includes the Mount of Olives. And the trek up from, Jer- um, from Jericho to the Mount of Olives is 14 miles, and it gains over 3,500 feet in elevation. To put that into perspective, for those of us that live in Colorado, we travel I-70, Vail Pass, from Vail to the summit is about 15 miles, and it's only 2,800 feet. So that road that your car struggles to get up and people are pulled over on the side with the hoods popped, right? And the same road that's got the semi-truck off-ramps that are gravel, like if they lose their brakes because people are going to die, that road pales in comparison to the one that Jesus and his disciples have to walk to go from Jericho to Jerusalem. And what's interesting, I know that that's just sort of like trivia, but think about how that sort of, by the time you get up to the Mount of Olives, the effort that it took, the exhaustion that would be involved, and the excitement when you finally got there, and then realize these people all think that Jesus is going there to be king. So all the, all the buildup, all the effort, all of the toil, all of the hardship of following Jesus around for two or three years, right? And all of that is finally going to be worth it when we get there. And they walk up this mountain, and when they get up to the Mount of Olives, there's two towns, Bethany and Bethpage, or Bethphage, if you want to, I don't know, I'm not French, I don't know if that's the right way to say it wrong. Um, you get up there, and Jesus says, hey, Go into the next town. There's going to be a colt tied up, a colt of a donkey. I want you to go grab it, untie it, bring it back to me. I'm going to ride on that. If anybody gives you a hard time about it, if the owner comes out, just tell him I need it. He'll let you have it. And it worked, right? And I think at this point, the disciples kind of were like, sure, whatever, right? This guy tells you to walk on water, you walk on water. He says, pass out fish, you pass out fish. He says, go around the corner, the White House on the left, the guy's name is Bob, tell him you want his donkey, he'll give it to you. You just go find Bob right? And so that's what happens. They go, they get it, um, they bring it back. It happens exactly that way. The guy says, what are you doing? And he says, Jesus needs it. Okay, (laughs) right? I don't care. Take my donkey. And so what's interesting about that, though, is as he's getting ready to head into Jerusalem, he knows what's going to happen. He knows he's going to die. But what this shows us is that he's in absolute control of everything. Nothing's catching him off guard. He knows where that donkey is parked, and that he's going to get to use it. He's in complete control of what happens to him over the next week. All right, and then everybody, uh, they get him on the donkey. Everybody starts throwing their coats on the ground, right? And there's like this royal procession where it's like a red carpet. It's like even your donkey can't touch the dirt because you're the king, right? And so there's all sorts of stuff. I promise there's really nerdy, cool things about the donkey and all that. Okay, he starts heading down from the Mount of Olives, and there's a party And I mean, like, the disciples, I think at this point, still don't get it. All they got out of that parable was, you're the king, right? (laughs) So they show up, and they're like, King Jesus is here. And they're throwing a party, and and it's a festival season, so there's people everywhere. And so the crowds are like, what are you doing? It's the king. And so the party gets bigger and bigger and bigger as they go down the road. And we're going to pick it up in verse 37. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, in other words, um, when you're looking out across the Kidron Valley, you can see Jerusalem. They finally made it up this long hill. They've got the donkey thing figured out, and they crest over the summit. There's Jerusalem in sight. 
the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen, right? For them, they're like, it's pretty obvious Jesus is the king, right? All the miracles. And so it says, blessed, they, they just, they're shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're quoting a psalm, but they add king in there. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so they're yelling and, and partying. The king is finally here. And you know what? Up until this point, Jesus never let anybody call him king. This is the first time in the gospel where Jesus says, you're right. Up until now, they would, they would try to crown him king and he would like slip out the back door, right? Or it says he would slip through the crowd. They were unaware, right? Or um, people would try to say that he's the king and he'd like make him be quiet, right? Or he would distract them or he would rebuke them and say, no, you keep that to yourself. And now you've got this crowd of people in a suburb of Jerusalem shouting, it's our king. And he's finally okay with it. Here's another nerdy thing that we're not going to cover, okay? Go look up Daniel 9. It's, there's this really cool prophecy about the 70 weeks, okay? It's kind of the backbone of, of predictive prophecy in the Bible. And it's basically, it sets out this timeline from uh, when the temple would be, or when the declaration for the temple to be rebuilt would happen until the Messiah would come. And some really smart people that do a lot more math than I want to do figured out the, the actual number of days that that would be. And, for, and we know the day that that proclamation went out. And guess what? This is that day. This is that day. And so Jesus is finally okay with it because it's the right time to fulfill that prophecy. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And you can imagine the turned up nose like, you better fix this. Did you hear what they said? They said, king. They said the word king. They were talking about you. Fix this, right? Jerusalem's right over there. Don't you dare let this party get over there with that word involved. Rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. I love this. It's finally time for the king to be revealed. And it's such a fundamental truth that Jesus is the king That if nobody else figured it out, creation would have said, that's your king, right? The rocks would be like, that's the king, that's the king, that's the king. And you're walking by, you're like, rocks are talking to me, right? That's how true this was. It was so true, creation would have blurted it out if they didn't figure it out. But what's interesting here is when Jesus says to them, to the Pharisees, even the rocks would have to say so if they didn't. He's saying, I'm the king. And so what he does here is he forces their hand. Again, he's in control, right? He forces their hand. Basically what he is saying to the Pharisees who have been on the fence or opposing him for a long time, right? What he says to them is, am I your king or not? Because I'm headed to Jerusalem with this king party, right? Am I your king or am I not your king? And they were either going to sign up and be on board for it, and and being representative, the leaders of Israel would have meant essentially Israel was on board for it, or you're not. And if you're not, you're going to have to kill me. So he forces their hand in this situation. But you know what? I don't think that that choice was just on the table for the Pharisees. I think that readers of Scripture from this moment on in the church 
have had to read this and then be forced to answer the same question. Is Jesus your king? You have to choose. Is he your king? And so um, if you think back to the parable, there are lots of people out there who didn't want that king to be, that nobleman to be king, and there are lots of people in our world that don't want Jesus to be king. It's just true, right? Now, I would assume in a church service that most of you guys are probably not in that camp, but it's possible that your, your wife drug you here or, or you're just doing this to like keep up appearances with the in-laws, but down inside of you, you'd say, he's not my king. And I've actually heard this argument from people before. If God is that way, he's not my God. If Jesus expects that from me, he's not my king. I don't want anything to do with that God. That is the dumbest thought. No offense. Well, no, be offended. Take a moment. Be offended. Let it hurt. That's dumb, right? Here's why it's dumb. You stand before a judge, and the judge says, here's my requirements for you, or you're going to jail, and you go, you're not my judge. You're going to jail, right? Like, that's how this works. You don't get to just say, well, you don't have any authority over me because you're not my king. No, it's a fundamental truth that even creation would have said, no, he's your king. The question is whether or not he's your king, my king, not the king. And so maybe you're here today and, and nobody's ever just said this to you and there just needs to be a point where somebody says, is Jesus your king or not? Or not. And the reality is, you're going to face the king. He's going to come back at some point, or you're going to die. You're going to get hit by a bus, right? You're going to get old. Something's going to happen. 7,500 people in America die every single day. Might be a long time from now. Might be tonight. You're going to face Jesus. and He's still going to be the king when you get there. And here's the hard part. Judgment is a hard conversation to talk about. Punishment's a hard conversation to talk about. Think about that parable. The, the enemies of Jesus didn't fare well in that parable, right? It's a hard conversation to have. Let's keep reading, because I want you to see something that kind of, it, it changes the tone a little bit here. Verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, like my Jerusalem, my people, my subjects, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. You don't see it. And you know what? The arrival of the king in that parable was a good day for some people, wasn't it? That's a good day when the king shows up and he says, if you would have only known that this day could bring you peace, But it's also a bad day for some people, isn't it? When the king shows up and you're not on his side. You're not part of his kingdom. If you're not in his kingdom, you're his enemy. And so he weeps over that. Think about that for a minute. The king that would say, there's going to have to be judgment here, is the same king who's weeping. And that word for weep there is not like a private thing. He's audibly, out loud, lamenting in front of all of these people. And they're like having a king party. Jesus is here. We're going to go take over. And he's looking out of the city and he's just weeping. Because he knows who they are. They've chosen to be his enemies. Verse 43. 
The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and uh, you and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And you know what this happened? Physically, this happened. In 70 AD, the Romans came in and leveled the city, destroyed it. He's looking out over the city and he's like, if you would have only known what would have brought you peace, but it's not going to go well for you. But check, check that last line out. Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. He's weeping because they're signing up to be his enemies. He's 100% just, this king, King Jesus. So full of justice that it demands the punishment for those people that sign up to be his enemy. But he's 100% merciful. And he weeps over that and he says, man, but I don't want you to be my enemy in the first place. All right, so maybe that's you. And you know what? You need to wrestle with that, period. Somebody needs to just stop you on the road and say, is Jesus your king or not? Today's that day. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you're here um, because you're like, uh, yeah, <laughs> Jesus is my, especially now, right? Like the end of this talk, like, is Jesus your king? Yes, yep, he's my king. All right, so that's you. Um, you know what? That means that you're one of the servants in the story. So what we need to figure out then, are you a good servant or are you the wicked servant? Am I a good servant? Am I part of the wicked servant group? And so here's the deal. Jesus expects a return on his investment. If he has entrusted you with the gospel, he doesn't come back and say, do you still have it? Can you show it to me? Can you prove to me that you still know what it is? When he comes back, he says, what'd you do with it? And I want you guys to hear this really clearly. I'm not saying that he's gonna take your faith away from you, that somehow if you don't work hard enough, you're not saved. That's not the point, right? But he says, it's not all about you. It's for you, not about you. That's something that we say around here a lot. The gospel's part of that deal. It's for you. He gave it to you for you so that you would do something and multiply it in the kingdom. And so we're gonna destroy a church word here real quick. You ever hear people talk about those people that are in ministry? Ministry is some paid position at a church. I am really blessed to be able to get a paycheck to do this. I'm not in ministry. We're in ministry. Ministry is for every one of us. The calling is for those people that have possession of the gospel to go out and multiply the gospel, to go out with that and do something for the kingdom and invest. You're in ministry too. Ministry is for everyone. And so... Let's ask some just real practical questions. Here's a good one to start with. What difference has the gospel made in my life? Right? Think back to that story with the guy with the, the, the bad servant. Jesus was like, you could have at least put it on the at the bank and got interest. Like, even if you weren't out there multiplying it, it could have grown in your possession. What difference has the gospel made in my, my life? Here's a better way to ask it or a different way to ask it. Would I be doing things differently if it were up to me? Would I be doing anything in my life different if it was about me instead of the kingdom? You know what? I would, personally. I think I would do my finances differently. I think I could probably find a job that pays better, quite frankly. 
right? I think if it was all about me, I would be doing my finances differently. I would probably be buried in debt so that I could have the cabin that I want and the vacations that I want. And like, if it was all about me, I probably wouldn't treat it the way that I treat it, my finances. Or, you know what, if it was all about me, everybody in my house would be all about me too. I brought you into this world, I'll take you out. <laughs> Bring me a beer. I said that last night, and my wife's back in the back row, and she just started laughing. I don't like beer, right? So she's like, that's dumb. Yeah. Well, you know what? If it was all about me, maybe I would have learned to like beer a long time ago, right? So I'd talk to, we're all friends, right? Okay. I would talk to the idiots in my life differently if it were all about me. I don't think I would hold my tongue as much as I hold my tongue. If Jesus did not have a claim on my life, and I was like, oh, it's all about me. You're stupid, right? Like, <laughs> You know what? I would do my sexuality differently, too. I'm coming up on my 15-year anniversary. I'm not sure I would have made it this far if it were all about me, right? I'd have done something stupid somewhere along the way that would have made her go, wait a minute, <laughs> right? If it was all about me. So a good question to ask, would I be doing anything different? And if you say yes, that's good. If you say, no, I think it would look just about like this, that's bad, okay? <laughs> um, here's another question. What difference has you having the gospel made in others' lives? What has your mind done in other people's lives? What would the person closest to you or the people closest to you say your ministry is? Not you with best of intentions getting to write that answer. The people around you say, oh man, this is how they impact people for the kingdom around me. Who is it in your life that's gone one step further in their walk with God or their knowledge of him simply because you were there? Are you able to answer that question, right? Or if you finished right now, what vacancy would you leave in the kingdom? If, snap, heart attack, you fell over, gone. What's missing in people's lives because of you and the gospel that you've been entrusted with? So, you know what? The reality is that each one of you, each one of us is called to ministry. Our job is to be doing something for the kingdom. And so, you know what? We'll bring this full circle. If that's what's on the final, then you know what? There's another thing that I really liked about really good teachers. I like practice tests. You ever have that teacher that was like, you know what? I don't want you to be bad at the final. And so about a week before, he's like, here's a practice version. Let's figure this out now before the final actually happens. Here's what we're gonna do today. Answer this question. My practice test is, my ministry is blank. If you can't write it, you may not have one. And listen, this is not a thing, I'm not trying to guilt you about it, but we should know what role we're playing in the kingdom. And maybe God has different roles for you at different seasons. It was one thing, it's something else now. Uh, maybe you're in a dry season and you're like, I don't really know, but I want it to be that, right? But it's not okay for the answer to be nothing. That was the bad servant's problem. What did you do with it? Nothing. I just kept it hid away. That's the wrong answer on the final. Okay? Maybe you don't feel a specific call to something. Maybe you're like, all these people in your life are like, oh, I know exactly what it is. I was called to do this six years ago, and I've been doing it ever since, and that's not you. <laughs> you're like, I don't know. I'm always asking Jesus what I should do, and you're paralyzed by not having an answer. Still not okay for nothing to be in the blank. We're all called to do something, right? 
You're called to make an impact in your kids' lives, your coworkers' lives, your parents' lives, your neighbor's life. You have that gospel, mina, and your job is to do business with it. Okay? Maybe you feel paralyzed because you tried once and it didn't work. Or there's somebody else already in that space. You're like, I think I could do this, but man, they do it so good. <laughs> there's no room. Still not a reason for you to say nothing. Maybe you failed before. Maybe you failed a bunch. Not a reason to have nothing in there. And so I'm going to leave you with this practical idea. An easy way to figure out, if, if you're sitting here today and you're like, I can't answer that question. I don't know. Like, I know maybe what it should be, but I don't, I don't do it, or maybe I have no clue what it should be. Here's an easy way to start. What burdens you? And what I mean is, as a Christian, you look around the world, and you see it, and you compare it to what you think it should be because of Jesus. And stuff doesn't match. Which one of those things that doesn't line up bothers you the most? And maybe it's like a, a social justice thing, and you're like, I can't handle the fact that there are wealthy Christian people who are, are not taking care of poor kids. And you're like, maybe that's your thing, right? Or maybe it's, it's dealing with a, a, a teaching issue, and you're like, I can't believe everybody thinks this. I wish they knew more about the God that I love, right? Whatever it is, you see what burdens you when you look at how it should be and how it is, that's a good place to start. And then, what skills and gifts and treasure, and time, and influence are uniquely yours? What have you been given? What does your life look like? And everybody's resources are different, and this is, again, it's not really a talk about resources, but the reality is, if you want to figure out what to do in the kingdom, the intersection between what burdens you and what you have available to you is a great place to start. Okay? You don't know how to fill in the blank, you can't do it wrong if you're out there investing because it didn't matter that one guy got 10 and one guy got five. What mattered is that they were out there doing the work of the kingdom. Okay? You don't know where to start? Start at that spot. Okay? Let me pray for you guys real quick. Jesus, we are so thankful uh, that you gave us this like practice test, right? You said, this is what I care about when I come back. Um, help us to not just rest in the fact that I've got the gospel, and I'm hiding it away for that day when you ask me something. But it makes no impact in our life. It makes no impact in other people's lives. We're so sorry that we've acted that way. Help us to live in a way that honors your kingdom so that we are doing business for you. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.